Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio, the channel that loves atheists. But on this episode, we're actually going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a look at um, BuzzFeed's video, Questions from Christians for Other Christians. I think there are some things that are asked here that perhaps unbelievers and skeptics and atheists might also wonder the answer to. And Christians that sympathize with these question askers might want to know how we would answer these as well. I think I'm one of those other Christians that they're asking the questions to. So we're going to jump right into this and not waste too much time getting started. I hope that this will be uh, helpful to you. And hey, listen, if you don't do anything else, uh, click that subscribe and the notification bell. That'll help us out in a way that won't cost you a dime. But thank you so much for being here. And with that, let's jump into the video. Do you really think he's freaking out because his name is not on a cup that you get to hold for 10 minutes while you drink a pumpkin spice latte? Do I think that he, I guess meaning God or Jesus specifically, is freaking out because of the Starbucks cup controversy that, unless you're living under a rock, you've probably heard about? No, and frankly, I think we should just go ahead and be prepared to recognize that um, there are a lot of businesses that are um, not necessarily going to be fighting a battle for Christian values and perhaps see because of their business model um, that and because of what they want their employees who might come from different faith backgrounds, um, you know, for them to be comfortable that they just aren't necessarily going to operate like you would expect them to operate. I don't think it surprises God one bit and it doesn't surprise me. And uh, I don't think it, um, I don't think God is, what did she say, freaked out about it. So we're starting off pretty easy, but yeah, I think think, um, you know, where we should be concerned as Christians is when local businesses or institutions um, take actions that uh, intentionally discriminate against Christians or something like that. And uh, I'm not one of those people that thinks we're experiencing major persecution in an obvious way in this country. Um, I'm in the U.S. right now, so or let's just say in the Western world in general right now. I just don't think that's happening. I, I mean, there are forms of what we might call a very light sort of persecution, and there may be instances where it's um, more severe, but I think that's really rare. I think right now we are blessed and fortunate to live in a place and in a time where we do not have to put our lives on the line or our livelihood on the line as people have had to do in the past in the history of the Christian faith. That day could come again. But um, I think right now we, we should expect that secular businesses are going to operate in a secular way and just not be too surprised about that. But whenever there is active discrimination in an obvious way, uh, that's where we should be concerned and that's where we should speak out. Let's keep trucking. Why does Christian music always sound like a mixture of like Nickelback and Third Eye Blind? Did you devote... Okay, that's uh, <laughs> that's a really great one. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of viewers here who are like sympathetic to that, and to a certain degree, I am too. 
Um, but I think it's a little bit more complex than a question like that might might uh, might make you think. And I think that when I and other Christians have said things like that, because I'm, I'm guilty of saying that very thing, um, maybe not third eye blind, but certainly Nickelback. Um, I, th I think there's more going on there that we need that, that we can talk about and understand a little bit. So um, when you think back to, you know, uh, let's say the, the 20th century up until the 70s when, you know, kind of the Jesus movement and you had more guitar mass in Catholic churches and you had some of that sort of thing going on where contemporary music started coming in. And then Calvary Chapel kind of really birthed the, the contemporary worship movement, as I understand it. Um, but, but when you look back to even the, the 80s and early 90s, what you're used to thinking of is in evangelical churches is hymns and, and traditional Christian songs like that. And maybe something that seems a bit uh, con quote unquote contemporary, um, where someone will sing what we call a special, where someone will get up right before the sermon and sing a solo. And that might be, um, a song that's popular among Christian, uh, musicians or something. Uh, but, but we're used to hymns overwhelmingly. Um, I think a lot of people grew up with that context. Maybe you did not, but I think that's a, and then if you grew up in a more liturgical setting, you know, you have a, a type of music that goes along with that. And it also includes hymns uh, most of the time. So so you have these kind of things. But toward the end of the 90s, when youth groups had been popular now for, uh, you know, a couple of decades, and there had been music that had been created kind of for youth groups to, to do in, uh, in the youth group and, and that sort of thing, you started getting this happening in the main services, you know, not just in the youth group with some youth pastor with a guitar, but now in the services. And so we're going to use it. We're going to do this and make it make it more um, professional and all that sort of thing. And so it, it did in the late 90s and early 2000s come out sounding very much like uh, Nickelback. Um, and to the extent that churches are sometimes not, uh, you know, uh, progressing much, but kind of get stuck in their ways. It still is true of a lot of churches. Um, and then, but the church that I go to now, which is a quote unquote contemporary church with quote unquote modern worship, it sounds more like, more like Coldplay. You know, you have kind of a Coldplay thing. Um, and churches have various musical styles. Why am I talking about this? Well, because I actually think there's an interesting reason for it. So to what you're trying to do, when, when, if you think about it, in the church experience, you, you've got people there that are Christians, most for the most part, at least that's the assumption. And then you have people that they've invited there who are non-Christians. And um, but but overwhelmingly, you've got Christians here, and even the non-Christians that are coming understand this is all about Christianity. This is a church after all. And so what you want to do is, if they're there, they un more or less they buy into the stated doctrinal statements, or they've learned to live with specifics that they maybe don't don't resonate with them as much. They might have a nuanced doctrinal perspective. Any, any particular member might, but it's not the end of the world. They more or less agree on all these things, and that's fine. But when you have a spread of different kinds of people, you know, older, younger, um, and and you know, different different ethnicities and things like that, this music is is something that is very. Um, subjective people like different things in music and so um, older people are not going to like the same things that younger people like for example and so that is a very difficult needle to thread you know um, you want the kind of music that is going to minister the most effectively to the people that are coming to your church for example um, it's not as shallow as um, just preference although it's often described that way because let's think about it if if 
if I go in and to a church and the worship is something like screamo type music, I'm probably not going to be able to really worship God uh, like I would if the music, I mean, I can worship God in the sense that I, I'm, I'm there loving the Lord with my, all my heart and all my mind and all those kind of things. But, but I'm not going to be in a state of mind with that kind of music that's going to make me, um, it's going to be conducive to worship and receiving a message from the Lord. Believe it or not, with some people, hymns aren't going to put them there. I love hymns. I love hymns, and I wish we did more hymns in the church that I attend. But for some people who perhaps had a bad experience at church when they were much younger, hymns represent a time in their life and a place that is not conducive to their worshiping. So what do you do? Well, um, what you try to, what most churches I think try to do is they they try to find a, a type of music that hits the largest swath of people to kind of, it kind of seems generally acceptable to the types of people to whom they minister. That's why a, 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 that's why a lot of Christian music today sounds kind of like a Coldplay type deal, because it's not going to be, that sort of music is not going to be over the top to anybody. Um, and it can have kind of a sincere, worshipful tone to it. So they go with that. Um, and, and so that, I think that's kind of what happens. Uh, so you have, and right now, you know, to get away from the sort of Nickelback type sound or what has now become the Nickelback slash Coldplay type sound or just the Coldplay type sound, um, a lot of people are, are moving to Anglicanism. A, a lot of people that grew up in uh, other denominations are moving to Anglicanism. That's an interesting development that's happening. And there's much more liturgical service there. And some people can connect with that because it's, it's self-consciously not like the stuff you would hear on the radio or something. And so there's something to be said for that as well. But the bottom line is there's more thought, I think, that goes into this than what people typically think. And as far as it sounding like, you know, outdated um, kind of frat boy type music, if that's what we're getting at with Nickelback, I completely understand and I relate to that. Um, because I think we need to give God the best that we can give him in how we do things to worship him. And um, that is, you know, it's just kind of an, an outdated and very temporally provincial. It represents a time and place in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and I think we can move on from that. But the, the point that I really want to underscore here is you hear a lot of people who have left um, these denominational churches, perhaps say things like this. And uh, if they've ever tried to like actually plan the music for a church service, it's a little more complex. And it really does, at least in the best cases, it actually speaks to us trying to love people, care about people, take care of people and make sure that they're being ministered to in an effective way. All right, let's get back to this. Actually, happen if you didn't post about it on Instagram. How okay, come we all let me run it back here just a little bit. Happen if you didn't post about it on Instagram. How come we she's saying, Would your devotions always sound like a mixture of like Nickelback, yeah, Nickelback and Third Eye Blind? Did your devotions actually happen if you didn't post about it on Instagram? How okay, now, first of all, I'm 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 what I typically do is cut up clips and put them into this software and use it. I'm trying to do something that's a little more time sensitive for me because I don't have time, all this time to, to spend on this as much as I'd like. But, but, um, but anyway, uh, she's saying here, um, would people know that your devotions happened or would your devotions matter or something if you didn't post about them on Instagram here too? I think, uh, this is an interesting thing. There's a great answer that William Lane Craig gave to a uh, clip uh, at the end of a debate to a question that one of the people in the audience asked. And it's not, I, I won't saddle this, this um, woman with this, but the person said, you know, all these people in church, they're just so hypocritical and they're just so proud and they're just so this and that. And Craig says, well, 
you sound pretty judgmental about all these church people that you're saying are judgmental, right? Um, and so in a situation like this, obviously, I think what she's trying to point out in a somewhat humorous way that I think most of us can relate to is that there are people out there who, you know, they will post what they learned in their devotion or they'll post something spiritual um, about their walk with God online. Now, um, the impression I think that she gives is that that is in some way offensive or arrogant or proud, perhaps. Maybe it's a bit pharisaical. Um, look at how spiritual I am that I'm posting this online. But of course, there are, there are a variety of reasons someone might do that. Um, on the one hand, someone might do that because they want to encourage conversation about that issue that they've uh, just brought up. Um, it might be that uh, they want to use it as an opportunity for themselves to remain obligated. People do that with their weight loss. Hey, I, I biked this far today, I'm, or, or you know, I weighed myself this morning and I was a pound down. You know, here's here's what my weight was a month ago. Here it is now, and it's it's a way of keeping yourself accountable to a large number of people on social media. Look, this is what I'm trying to do. And it kind of helps me that I know that, that people are watching and that I have said that I would do this. And it's a way of keeping yourself motivated that way. That's one reason someone might do it. And both of these options I've just given, either to encourage conversation or encourage somebody else, or to keep yourself accountable are not bad things. Those are perfectly acceptable. Is there another way, reason someone might do this? Yeah, and I think it's the one that's assumed here that there's some arrogant or pride issue, something pharisaical about doing this. But of course, then that's a judgment call that you're making. And sometimes it's, it may be obvious that, or at least seem obvious that that's what's going on. And sometimes it's not that obvious. And so going back to the William Lane Craig answer of, well, you're being pretty judgmental about these judgmental church people. Here we have a person who is looking at a post where someone's talking about something they got out of their devotional that morning. And, um, and making a judgment call about why that person is doing that. Uh, so you have an option here. I can think the best about this person, and, and, or I can think the worst about this person. This is just arrogance. So you choose to think the worst. Um, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I, I really don't think so. But maybe I am. Maybe I'm thinking the worst about her. Uh, and if so, then, then uh, that's just going to loop back around on itself. But, but I think the, the idea is that there's something negative about your doing this. And there can only be one of two reasons why, right? Either it's going to be offensive to someone else who doesn't hold your worldview, or it's going to, or you're doing it out of arrogance. So I don't think I'm too much off. I don't think it's too much of a stretch. So uh, now, why would it be, why would, it, this is Christians asking this of other Christians. These aren't atheists. These aren't unbelievers. So why would it bother her if, 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 if it's, okay, if she's judging that it's a pride issue, then she's choosing to think the worst about someone. Unless it's just blatantly obvious, in which case I agree with her. Um, if it's not that, if there's just something inherently offensive about her, about someone posting their, on Instagram, their, their devotional stuff, um, could it be that actually what's happening here is um, a little bit of conviction that maybe that reminds you that you're not uh, spending enough time in the word and spending time with the Lord? Is that maybe what's going on? Maybe not, but maybe so. And uh, maybe that's something that you could reflect on. I've tried to do something that, and this is not me bragging about this, but I've tried to do something, you know, when you're growing up in the ministry, sometimes you can sit and listen to another preacher and you, and, and you can kind of be critical because you know what it's like to write, write a sermon. You know what it's like to preach, you know how all that is. And you can be critical of how they're using the text, of how they're coming off, of the, uh, the illustrations that they're using and, and all those kind of things. And uh, I've been around some really bad preaching, honestly, and I've been around some preaching where I don't know that the guy necessarily has the best 
motivations all the time. Maybe he's trying to just get a laugh or be perceived as a good showman or something like that. But I have tried to endeavor that even, especially when I recognize that that might be going on, to back off of that and introspect and think, okay, but he's reading scripture. Is there something I can learn from this? Is there something that I can take away from this? And, uh, and, and, and that's a good thing to do. Whenever you see something going on in someone else's life, online or anywhere else, that seems to you, something seems to be wrong about that, that might be helpful to note, and it might even be helpful to reach out to that person privately and talk to them about that. But one thing that should definitely happen, if nothing else does, is introspection to look at your own life and say, why do I feel the way that I do in response to this? And even if I'm right in what I'm feeling about this, um, how can I, how can I uh, consider my own life and my own shortcomings in light of that? So I, I, I again think that this is multifaceted. Um, social media is a great place to encourage discussion. It's a great place to stay accountable. Of course, we shouldn't do things out of arrogant and prideful, you know, sort of stuff. Uh, but you're making a judgment call about which of those things is going on. So I think all that needs to be taken into account. We all love Tim Tebow. I mean, I do love him. I just don't know why. Why can't you? Okay, why do we love Tim Tebow? Okay, now I, I haven't followed the whole Tim Tebow thing since originally uh, he became a Christian celebrity. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I think what we're getting here is evangelicalism as this big ball of wax. So you've got Christianity in there, right? Like the gospel message and the Christian narrative. And then what gets piled in on top of that oftentimes are certain celebrities in the moment, right? Um, uh, certain political figures. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in just a little while, but they all get thrown into this mix, certain musical acts, um, certain movies, they become a part of what evangelicalism is. And Christianity is, of course, under, you know, theoretically undergirding why we hold these values. But but that this all gets pushed together. And what can happen, unfortunately, is a couple of things. One, if you put your money on someone who is a Christian celebrity who may have done a very noble thing and gotten recognition for that reason, like Tim Tebow, and I, and I don't know what has happened with Tim Tebow, um, but I know this has happened with other Christian celebrities, um, is then they can make a, a huge mistake somewhere along the lines. And we have so like put them on a pedestal and said, this is a great example of someone from our you know, tribe basically out there in Hollywood or out there in sports or whatever, and, and look how they're waving the flag for us. And of course that's great. And in the moment, that's great. And we can praise that and say, that's a wonderful thing that God can reach people through this person and through the influence that they have. And that's a wonderful thing. But if you, if you go too far and, and you put someone on too much of a pedestal without properly, you know, making sure everyone recognizes we know we're all human and we're all prone to make mistakes, then when that person has a moral failing, evangelicalism, the big ball of wax that, that you have crafted together out of celebrity and culture and uh, music and uh, TV shows and all that on top of the Christianity gives Christianity a black eye, gives evangelicalism a black eye and along with that Christianity. And so we've got to be very careful um, how, how we look at stuff like that. And, um, I think about how a few years ago, um, Duck Dynasty became a huge thing. And, and Duck Dynasty was even, one of the guys was even in the God's Not Dead movie, right? Which God's Not Dead in and of itself is another thing that got got packaged in with all the evangelicalism. And Trump got packaged in with all the evangelicalism, all this stuff. And if there are enough things in that ball of wax that is evangelicalism and people look at it and they say, I, that, that, I don't identify with that, that, 
that's not me. That's some of that stuff I think is not good and kind of gross, or at least um, doesn't represent me. Uh, then, then that can you know that can reflect badly on Christianity, which Christianity is not the same thing as your culture's Christendom, but it has been packaged together that way, and then. You know, that's why we just had someone on the live stream from last Friday ask, do you think that evangelicals being in support of Trump um, has has made it hard to do evangelism and apologetics with unbelievers? And um, uh, Pritchett, uh, Jonathan Pritchett, my co-host, he, he pointed out rightly that, well, here's the thing. Um, it does not follow that. Here's an argument for the truth of Christianity. Here are the premises. Here's the evidence we have for that. Oh, but wait a minute. Are you a Trump supporter? Well, then suddenly your argument becomes invalid or something. No, I mean, that, that doesn't work logically. But when we're trying to reach people, we're not just trying to win arguments. We're trying to win souls. And so for some people, if they, I mean, regardless of how you feel about Trump, personally, I think that um, abortion is a big enough issue. And that could be, I have whole other videos on that, but abortion is a big enough issue that it strongly impacts my I vote. Uh, but here's the thing. If, if you package that all in, and especially if you try to act as though Trump is somehow, you know, you've taken him and baptized him and made him holy um, as if he is this great, you know, uh, emblem of Christianity today. Um, and you package all that into evangelicalism. Well, then that's that and the Duck Dynasty thing and the Tim Tebow and all that. And then Christianity's in the mix. There are going to be certain people that, that are going to find that hard to swallow because there's a lot of stuff there that they can't connect with when what we ultimately want to offer them is the gospel. So, you know, that's some stuff that I think is important when we talk about Christian Christianity in our culture and, and Christian individuals who we kind of hold up as representatives of who we are. Um, ultimately, Jesus is who we want to be like. We want to be like Jesus. We want to represent Jesus. We want to be the body of Christ. And we recognize that there are individuals within our camp, <laughs> within the body of Christ, who may mess up and, and, and make it all look bad. But we should be pointing people to Jesus all the time and saying, we are all frail humans who make mistakes, but there's Jesus over there. We're all trying to be like him. And that's what we ultimately want to do. All right, let's get back to this now. Just pray. Why does it have to be a prayer and then like someone in the background being like, yeah, how? Okay, so th now this one has to do with worship, uh, like in a corporate worship service when someone's praying and there's this emotional, worshipful music perhaps going on in the background. And uh, there's there's some important things to say about this too, because one of the things about this video that I think there's a lot of Christians who do talk this way, I know them, um, but there's more there's there are deeper reasons why some things are happening in the church but when you say it in a video like this with the kind of quirky music going on in the background and you're kind of say it in a funny and somewhat snarky way and with a little bit of attitude it does sound pretty shallow and i totally recognize that and some of it is shallow right um but there, there is more to say about this so why is that the case now here's my answer to that I get really bothered when I'm in a, and this is, this, maybe this is shallow on my part. When I'm in a worship service and we've just, we're between songs, you know, we've just had one song, we're about to go into another song. And now this, this ethereal music is playing in the background and um, someone comes up to pray. And, and I call these the just people, the just worship leaders. And the reason I call them that is because they say the word just multiple times. Lord, I just, I just want to, Lord, just, 
just, just Lord, fill this place and just, just impart your spirit and just, Lord, just let us forget about the week ahead and the week behind and Lord, just, and, and you hear just like 15 times. I don't know how that gets into the mix. Uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand basically what's going on here. However, in principle, I don't see anything wrong with a, a tone, a vibe being created in a worship service that puts you in a state of mind where you uh, can be prayerful corporately, um, where you can focus on deep truth and the word of God and reflect on your own life and um, issues that you need to deal with in your own life. And I, I know what the atheist would say about this, right? Um, the atheist would say, well, yeah, of course, because music can uh, manipulate the emotions and all those kind of things. And uh, okay, uh, that's fine. But you know, that's not what we're doing here. The, we're talking about Christians who are all convinced of Christianity and why they do what they do. Uh, theoretically, the people who are asking the questions in this video are Christians who are convinced of Christianity. Um, so, so this is an in-house discussion, and that whole business about manipulating people's emotions, we can handle that in another video. Uh, thank you, but we can handle that later. But for this video, um, I think it's important to point out that we are not just individuals who, are, who um, worship God with our mind, but we are also individuals for whom God created an emotional aspect to what we are and how we operate. And as a result, emotions are important and how we respond to music is important. And in the scriptures, emotion is powerful. Emotion uh, moves us and, and it's, it's related to corporate worship in the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with, with having, I mean, even, even when people who are not Christians engage in meditation and things like that, often music is a part of that. I, I just don't know why we would say nope because when we're when we're doing worship we can't have any of that anything emotional going on well why wouldn't you want to worship god with everything that you are and so if it's not done in a shallow way and, and if it's um, understood by the, the the body of christians that are there in the corporate space that we are we are setting a tone um and and that's of course part of this there's a great book um, by Sally Morgenthaler called Worship Evangelism. And one of the things that the book talks about is how we need to create a space f for worship. Our church, our sanctuaries um, can serve as a place where people come and it's unlike anything else in their daily lives. Uh, you know, the, the church used to be considered the third place, not in terms of importance, but in terms of daily activities. You would be at home, you would go to work or school, and then there was also church. Church was the third place, and that's where you would have your social interaction. That's where you would um, talk with other people, share concerns, work together as a community to make the community better, and of course, talk about the deepest issues of life that uh, Christianity uh, answers. And so, you, so, so it was the third place. Well, now with the rise of social media, and for sure in the midst of um, the nat the worldwide pandemic that we're experiencing now, um, the church is less the third place than it used to be. And so for those of us who do go there and invite others to come with us to church, it is, it, it, it is important, I think, in some way, uh, maybe not necessary in the philosophical sense, but it's important and helpful if it represents uh, a place that is different. Um, the organization of it, the uh, how you sit, I mean, the, 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 the music, the imagery. And of course, that is true in modern worship with um, the music and the ambiance and all those things. It's true in traditional uh, worship and liturgical services with the architecture of the building and stained glass windows and all those kind of things. So that's always been understood to be a, an interesting and important part of what's going on because this is a, a different kind of place. And of course, I think there's actually some biblical connection here. You know, when the tabernacle 
when the children of Israel came out of um, Egypt and they got um, uh, they 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 got the instructions for building the tabernacle, if you really look at those instructions, what you'll understand is that when you enter the tabernacle, uh, and I have a video that shows this, um, uh, but I'm not going to take the time to put it in here. But when when you entered the tent of meeting, when you walked inside uh, the, the the tent of the tabernacle, you you would there was uh, gold um, colored glass, basically reflective metal is what it was. That's, you know, in uh, ancient times, the way you would have a reflection for something like a mirror is you would have um, really highly polished metal. And so you'd have this, this, uh, this uh, golden or bronze, I can't remember which it is. I think it's gold um, on the walls. And when you walked in there, if, if that, if you understand what is being said here, it would create an infinity, uh, mirror type situation where you're looking on either side of you and you're surrounded. And of course it's the smells from incense and everything is just, you have gone from a desert environment into a very otherworldly environment inside that tent. And that's important um, because in some measure, the tabernacle is reflective of heaven and that's going way out into the weeds of what we're talking about here. But I think it's important that the space where we worship God is in some way designed and thought out to be a place where we um, where it's conducive to corporate worship. Now, someone might say back to that, yeah, but in the early church, they were meeting in houses and uh, things like that. Well, that's true. But remember, the early church didn't have to think too much about the fact that they were other than the people in the world around them. The people were very different from them in the world around them. And so, uh, you know, we can forget that in our drywalled and air conditioned houses. So, sure, uh, five people meeting together in uh, in a house somewhere can still worship God, perhaps in just as robust a way spiritually as they would in some sanctuary somewhere. But I think it's helpful. That's why I say not maybe not philosophically necessary if the environment of worship is conducive to all of that. So um, maybe that'll be helpful in some way. I'm everyone still supporting Donald Trump. Why? Okay, so why is everyone still supporting Donald Trump? Now we got into this a little bit, but I'll just go ahead and say it now because we are during an election season. And let me let me try to put this as clearly as I can um, for people that just don't understand how Christians could support Donald Trump. First of all, let me say, let me put myself up big on the screen. Um, I completely get it. I understand the concerns. Um, when you think about the, the, the arrogance of this man, the uh, devil-may-care attitude, and frankly, that's probably why a lot of middle Americans uh, wanted to vote for him. Hey, yeah, um, you know, we're sick of politicians, qua politicians, and so we want someone with a big stick to go in there and shake things up a little bit, and, and let's drain the swamp and get rid of the status quo and all those kind of things. Uh, some people are, are, you know, are willing to put up with that arrogance and that attitude and the impulsiveness because of that. And also because um, th they perceive him to have, you know, pretty well tried to accomplish the things that he said he was going to try to accomplish, which is rare for a politician, uh, for a president in the past. Uh, but the, the point is, Christians are right to be concerned about this man's personality. And I know that doesn't make a lot of the Christians happy that, that are that are pro-Trump, but um, that is unavoidable. The reality is this man has, you know, exhibited, I think, um, at times, uh, for sure in the past, uh, not exactly the character that we would have ideally for the president. 
Um, however, on the other hand, and this is the key. So first of all, let me say for those that aren't going to vote for Trump because of that personality and that um, what they perceive to be a, a sinful persona and, and that sort of thing. I appreciate that you're concerned about those kind of things, obviously. And I and so that side that side of that debate resonates. I get that. On the other hand, uh, for those for many of us, the issue is that we're talking about um, a time in history when abortion is still very much a, a contentious issue. And for many of us who have non-religious, hear me now, non-religious arguments, philosophical arguments that abortion is the killing of a person. And by the way, that is not a scientific question. That is a philosophical question. It is a scientific fact that you have uh, that, that human life begins at conception. What we want to know is at what point does it become a person and does bodily autonomy give you the right to end that life? Okay. That's a question about personhood and morals, and that's philosophical, not scientific. And so science kind of has to, sh has to step out of the room when we have that discussion. And there are non-religious arguments for this that I am as certain of their uh, their success as I am almost any philosophical arguments that one could put together. And so uh, for those of us who see it that way, who see this as the killing of a person, what we see is we see something that is tantamount to um, a genocide, uh, tantamount to a holocaust of sorts. And I make no apologies about saying that. And so when you so the question has to become, OK, look, um, let's say that you had someone who, let's say they just wanted to kill all Canadians, or at least they wanted people to have, maybe they, they would say, we hate the idea that Canadians have to be killed. So, uh, we're going to take measures to try and reduce that through education and other things. But ultimately, um, people should have the right to choose if they want to kill a Canadian. Let's say that was what was being said. Okay. Now, uh, you would you would not care what other policies this person had. You wouldn't say, well, I don't like that issue um, because I'm, I'm pro-life, especially when it comes to the killing of Canadians. But they have such great policies on this and that and the other thing and 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 all that. You wouldn't say that Th that issue would be big enough that you would be saying, I don't care what the other policies are. You really want to put someone like that in power? What is wrong with you now? We understand in the pro-life community that others don't see it quite that way. And that's why we make videos and try to present arguments and reasons why we do see it that way. However, for those of us who see it that way, especially with this whole Supreme Court justice situation and everything else, you've got to understand that we many of us are willing to say, maybe we don't like this guy. Maybe we don't like what, you know, his the way he talks or his personality or, or the way he presents himself or some of his impulsive tweets and things like that. However, this is literally life or death for hundreds of thousands and over a long enough period of time, millions of people, and we won't stand for it anymore. And for that reason, you can say it seems um, short sighted to be a single issue voter. But number one, we might not be single issue voters. But if that was the issue, if you saw it the way you would see the issue with the killing of Canadians, you would not think it seemed short sighted to be a single issue voter. In fact, you would see that as pretty darn reasonable. And so that's just 
I think, an explanation of where we stand on this. And as far as the defense of that view of abortion, that's more than we can do in this video. But hopefully that will explain it to some degree. All right, let's keep trucking. So afraid to talk about sex. Sex is good. Have you read Song of Solomon? Okay, why are you guys so afraid to talk about sex? Sex is a good thing. Now, perhaps I um, had a different experience than, than some people have had. But I mean, I've been in hundreds of churches over the past 20 years. Um, I've been in far more churches than most people have because I was traveling and speaking in different churches every week, sometimes more than one per week, and did that for 15 years. So, and then of course I was pastoring before that and traveling and speaking some. And then of course, before that I was a pastor's kid and my dad was an evangelist and I traveled with him some. So yeah, in my life, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches of various denominations. And I just didn't get this message that sex is bad. When I hear these people in this sex positivity movement, of course, I know what they're trying to do, but I think I'm sex positive. I I'm all for human sexuality in the way that God intends it. And of course, this is the old youth group style analogy, and I think it's a good one. And it's fire is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Fire is great. I love fire. Fire helps us cook our food. Fire helps us roast marshmallows. Fire helps us with all kinds of things. And in my home, fire is a good thing. But we want that fire to be in a very specific controlled situation in the fireplace. If you put the fire in the middle of the living room and not in the fireplace, your house will be destroyed. And in the same way, human sexuality is a wonderful thing. It is something God gave us to enjoy and to procreate and to bond with one another. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it, it has a place. Just like the fire has the fireplace, it has a place. And the place for human sexuality is in the marriage bed. It's uh, between a married couple. That is what, that is the proper place. And if you let it go anywhere else, it will destroy your home given enough time. Um, that's the way it is. But as far as being afraid to talk about it, no, we're not afraid to talk about I mean, I can, I guess um, there may be specific individuals in the church and I, I agree with the person on this point to the extent that uh, people in the pews might not like their um, seventh grader hearing the pastor talk about sexual purity and, and human sexuality in a biblical way. It has always blown my mind that people will let their kids sit there and, and they'll be offended when the pastor says something um, about human sexuality that's biblical, but then they'll let their kids go home and watch some program that jokes about human sexuality in an explicit way. And they'll sit there on the couch with their kids and laugh at that. What's wrong with you? No wonder. And if you're worried that your kids don't, uh, that, that we're going to expose your kids to too much talk about human sexuality, where do you want your kids learning about human sexuality? from mature men and women who are married and have successful relationships and are giving it to you in a biblical way in church? Or do you want them to hear about it on TV unfiltered? Which way do you want to, which way do you want them to hear about it? Again, I'm not talking to you atheists. I understand that you think it's horrible to give them uh, biblical sexual purity. That, that might be a horrible thing. I know that's not all of you, but some of you. Um, but, uh, but this is a video for Christians, by Christians, for Christians, and that should be where you'd want your kids to hear. Anyway, I, I, but beyond that, I, I've always been told in church, sex is wonderful. I remember not too long ago, I, I was at a church, well, it's been a few years ago, in Michigan, 
and uh, in, in uh, Detroit. And uh, the pastor's wife, I was having dinner with the pastor and his wife, and they had like two or three kids. And they said, she said, I always tell our kids, sexy is not a bad thing. Sexy is a wonderful thing. But sexy is only a wonderful thing when it happens between two people who are married behind a closed door. That's where sexy is a wonderful thing. And I thought, that's great. But we're not, you know, afraid to talk about it. I, I, I don't know. Maybe she just had a different experience than I did. All right, let's keep trucking. How come we all love Chick-fil-A? Why do you? How come we all love Chick-fil-A? Have you had Chick-fil-A? If you've had Chick-fil-A, you know why we love Chick-fil-A. It's awesome. Now, it is another one of those things that can get thrown into that evangelical ball of wax. And Chick-fil-A itself isn't Christianity, right? But people appreciate Chick-fil-A. Christians appreciate Chick-fil-A because it is, it, um, it, I, my understanding is that it's has, um, has had Christian leadership and, uh, they often hire young Christian homeschoolers and people like that, um, to, to work there. And they very much are about family values and they're closed on Sunday, which kind of sends a message that they appreciate. Not that it's sinful necessarily to go to somewhere to get food on Sunday. Who hasn't said, I'm going to go get some Chick-fil-A and then realize dadgummit it's Sunday, right? I mean, that's happened to all of us, but that sends a message that they care about their people going to church and you know, all those kind of things. Um, now, the, the stand they took against homosexuality or, or whatever it was a few years ago really bugged some people, but they were standing on what they believed to be biblical um, convictions. And I understand that ticked a lot of people off, uh, but I went to Chick-fil-A this weekend and the line was wrapped around the building like four or five times. And I'd wager we could find some people who philosophically are not where Chick-fil-A is, but they're still going to Chick-fil-A because it's good. What do you mean? Why do people like Chick-fil-A? Oh my gosh. Facebook is an appropriate place to discuss theology. Why? Why do you think Facebook is an appropriate place to discuss theology? Well, let's go back to our discussion a moment ago about, um, about, uh, the third place and church being the third place. Social media has now become the third place. And so that's a great place to share our interests. What would you be saying that if we were talking about why is why would you think Facebook is a good place to talk about video games or a movie that you saw or some musical artist? You wouldn't have a problem with that. So why is it wrong for me to talk about the thing I love the most, which is theology? I talk about theology everywhere. I'm talking to you about it right now. I talk about it at home. I talk about it um, when, when I'm here at work. I talk about it when I travel. I talk about it to everybody. Why? Because I love it. Because God is, my Christian faith is at the center of who I am. It is deeply a part of my identity. You can expect to hear me talking about Christianity. It's like um, someone online made a response video to me the other day, and I said something like, yeah, we're Christians, expects to say Christian stuff. And they acted like, well, why would he think he has to say that? This kind of thing is why I think I have to say that. Because there's this idea that religion and politics, you don't, don't talk about those things on social media. Um, but honestly, uh, because they're controversial, I mean, if you talk about anything that matters, you're going to offend some people. I mean, after all, this person who just said this is on a video that is on a social media platform where she's talking about theology, basically asking the question, why are you talking about theology? That's a bit odd, isn't it? You're on social media talking about why we should be talking about theology on social media. 
Social media is a great place to discuss ideas and, and it's a great place for the marketplace of ideas if it's done with maturity and in the right way. And some of the best theological conversations I've ever had have been on Facebook. I mean, why would a Christian have a pro? This is really the thing. I, it makes me want to ask this Christian some questions. This makes me want to, you know, put the things you're doing under a microscope. Because I don't know. Wh wh why would a Christian have a problem with Christians talking about Christian stuff on Facebook? I, I, I don't know. It's very odd to me. It's very odd. All right, let's keep going. When Paul said that we all have our own individual gifts, that we feel the need to fit into this absolutely perfect mold, that's impossible. Why are That is an incredibly ambiguous question. Why, when Paul said that we all have these different gifts, do we have to fit into this perfect mold? What? I, I don't. There are all kinds of people in the church exercising different gifts. I, I, I don't. He wasn't talking about different proclivities. He wasn't talking about different hobbies, although that's there too. And there's nothing wrong with it, provided they're not immoral hobbies. We're talking about gifts, right? God has gifted people to do all kinds of different things. And we have people in the church doing all those kinds of different things. I have no idea what she's talking about. Um, that sounded, I don't know. I need more information on that one. Let's see what this person has to say. As Christians, more known by the things we hate than by our acts of love. Okay, why are we more known by the things that we hate than the thing than, the, than our acts of love? Now, this fundamentally means we would have to define some terms, right? So we're talking. Let's talk about you know what is it? What does she mean by love? I'm assuming that what she means by love is caring about people, um, wanting to help people, uh, being empathetic you know, trying to make other people's lives better, be there for them when things go bad, show them love, right? That, that's, that's, and, and I think all that's great. Here's the thing. When you go one layer deeper, some of that gets really complicated really fast. So wanting to make people feel better, wanting to help people. Okay. What does it mean to want to help people? What does it mean to want to help people? She probably suspects she might be helping other Christians right now by pointing out some uncomfortable truths about the way they operate in this video, right? Is that loving me? Well, if, if she's to the extent that she might be right about things, it might help me because now I have to introspect and think, am I doing what God would want me to do with respect to this particular aspect of my life? That is helping someone and not necessarily in a pleasant way. If someone, it, it, so speaking about what we're against, so let's go back to the abortion thing. We're, you know, not every Christian, but... I think uh, uh, what is seen probably as a strong Christian position right now is the pro-life position. Um, I'm just supposed to love people, right? Why, why am I known for what I'm against? I'm trying to love people, especially the unborn children, but also the women who might engage, uh, might go to a Planned Parenthood or something and have an abortion. I'm trying to love them by telling them the hard truth. That's what Jesus did. Jesus told people hard truths. Bible says this was a hard saying, right? This is a hard thing to learn. So, um, so, so that's sometimes you have to love people, not only by doing all of those other things, which I think the church is doing. I think the church, I think that actually, I think that because of what we, because we say the hard things sometimes, because we, we, it is clear what we're against in many cases, because of that, those are the things that get the focus instead of all the other things that we try to do. 
like missions all around the world and one of the most incredible missions engines in the world and and not just out there preaching the gospel but also doing things to practically help people in an earthly sense right now and um uh, giving you know trying trying to help people adopt children and trying to um in some cases trying to help with the environment and when there's a disaster like hurricane katrina um, the southern baptist convention's disaster relief is like there on the spot like you wouldn't believe i think they were the first ones I mean, it, it, there's all kinds of things that we're doing to practically help counseling services made available, um, all kinds of things like that. But um, there's in addition to those things that we're for, um, there are things that we're against. And those things that we're against, we're against them because we love people. And so love is sometimes manifested in ways that aren't pleasant to the person being loved at the time. And anyone who's had kids knows what that's like. Uh, there are times that the best, just this morning, I had to have a hard conversation with my daughter on the way to school. And you know what? She didn't like it one bit. She didn't like it one bit. But was I just being mean to her? Was I just about what I was against? No, I was trying to love her by correcting attitudes and ways of behaving while she's young right now so that when she becomes an adult other people will you know that she'll be a functional adult because right now i'm willing to put up with some of that bad attitude because i love her and i want to help her overcome that now because when she's an adult other people who don't care as much about her as i do they're not going to put up with it and so i want to help her become a good person right now so that when she's an adult she can actually function in society successfully and, of course, be an ambassador for Christ. But in the moment, it sure sounded like I was just telling her what I was against. So we have to mature a little bit past this idea of, well, love just means making people feel better all the time and just helping people in a way that seems to them positive because it isn't always like that. But unfortunately, we live in a culture today that's very geared that way. Um, you, you, you go to a psychologist and sometimes they might, they might tell you some hard truths, but sometimes they might, the goal might be to alleviate your guilt. And maybe we, maybe we give you some ideas of how to deal with that guilt. Maybe we prescribe you some medication that'll help with that guilt because you shouldn't have to feel bad when in reality, maybe that guilt is there for a darn good reason. And the way to alleviate this is to focus on the thing that's causing the guilt in the first place and get that right. Otherwise, until you deal with that issue, it it's always going to be a recurring problem. Now, that's not to say that everyone who has anxiety issues that feel like guilt or things like that, that there's always some obvious thing to, to resolve. There's not always an obvious thing to resolve. Uh, sometimes there really is a chemical imbalance. And so you may need to be on some kind of a medication. I certainly know what that's like. I've been on Lexapro for a couple of years. But the point is, um, we live in a culture that says, let's make you feel better. When it may be that, no, actually, it might be good that you feel worse for a minute so that then as a result of that, you can make things better. Um, and so when we talk about loving people, sometimes loving people isn't always seen to them in the moment as a positive thing. All right, let's keep trucking. Why do you think Christianity and science are incompatible? If anything, science makes God look a lot cooler. Why I don't know anyone who thinks that. I don't know any Christian who thinks that science and Christianity are incompatible. I simply don't know anyone like that. Hardcore fundamentalists, um, they have a way of thinking about science and, and faith that, that, you know, that, that works. 
people who there are theistic evolutionists who think that it all works. I, I don't know anyone who says that those two things don't work. That's a Christian. I don't know anyone like that. And yes, the fact that God gave us an intelligible, rational and rationally accessible universe is cool. God is cool that way. I, but I don't know that, that some of these things just sound like off the top of your head or something. I mean, these are these are such some of these things, not all of them some, are such stereotypes. It's such like they aren't even true. You know, you're so adamant about exercising. You no, know, wait a minute. I, I want to run it back. Did I hear her correctly? Let's let's hear it. Let's hear this again. Then by her acts of love. Why do you think Christianity and science are incompatible? If anything, science makes God look a lot cooler. Why yeah, I mean, that's what she said. I don't know anyone like that. I don't know this person. Show me this person. Who is this person? You're so adamant about exercising your religious freedoms, but then get so offended when people of other faith exercise their religious freedoms. Why? Okay, now, to the extent that people do that, that's right. I, you know, but what I've heard from even some of the most uh, fundamentalist people is, hey, um, I, I will, what, what, how, how do you get, I will, f I, I think you're wrong. Like say about Islam, I think Islam is false and I will fight uh, philosophically, you know, in terms of worldview fighting, not physical fighting. I will fight that worldview with everything I've got, but I will also fight for your right to build a mosque. Right. Because I've heard fundam hardcore fundamentalists say that sort of thing. Why? Because we do value our religious freedoms. Now, you're you're so now if that's the way it's being perceived, you understand, like sometimes what you're perceiving as us being offended that someone else has a religious freedom. What you're really um, encountering is, no, 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 we're glad they have the freedom. We're, we're fine that they have the freedom. We're, but we are bothered about the worldview itself and we're going to speak out against it. But, the, but our speaking out against opposing worldviews isn't the same thing as us being offended that they have religious freedom. Those, those are different ideas. Now, there probably are some people offend, uh, bothered and offended with the religious freedom that, that fits exactly what this person is talking about. And to that extent, I would agree. We ought to be all for religious freedom. Uh, within reason now, right? Like we, uh, you know, your, your freedom ends at the tip of my nose is how some people say you can throw a punch, but you hit my nose. You've, you've, you've crossed my freedom, right? So, um, you know, there, there's, there's a freedom issue that you know, you're, you, I remember when I was in uh, Toronto, just not too long ago, someone was sharing an idea, share, sharing an, um, experience where they were on an airline and, uh, there were some Muslims there on the airline and, uh, and, and they were, this person was like at the front of the, of the, of a section, you know, where like, it's just the wall in front of them, but there's a little space, by the way, sometimes you can pay a little more and get, um, and you can have that space. Uh, you can have that front row and it's not like, it's not first class, but it kind of feels like first class because there's nobody right in front of you bending their chair. But beside, by the way, let me just say something. If you're the kind of person that gets on an airplane and, and, and reclines your seat, yes, I'm aware that they can recline and that it's allowed but what sort of a monster reclines a, a, an airplane seat? Because think about it. There is not an infinite regression of airplane seats. And when you lean back, in order for me to have any space at all without your seat right in my face, I've got to lean back. And then that person's got to lean back. And someone's on the last row and can't do anything about it. Just think about that next time. That one's free. 
Um, but this person was sitting at the front of this thing and they got up to stretch their legs during the flight is like an overseas flight. And some, uh, a couple of a Muslim couple comes and starts, you know, doing their prayers in that spot on the floor. And the, uh, and, and, the, and, and they're looking at this and oh, wait a minute, those are our seats. Why are they doing? And they said something to the flight attendant and the flight attendant said, well, that's the only place where they can, where they can do that, where they're not in somebody's way. This person's like, well, yeah, but I paid for that seat, right? Like, you know, the, the thing about it is you're, you have religious freedom, but it doesn't get to walk all over me. Right. Um, but there's a difference between being offended that someone has religious freedom and being concerned about the worldview itself and speaking out against it. So I think that's important. All right, let's, uh, let's get back to this and hear some more. Do you feel like I have to constantly be preaching in order to be a good Christian? Is showing my friends love and grace not allowed to just speak for itself sometimes? Uh, sometimes. The Bible actually gives us an example of that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, this, the point of this is not to talk about wives being submissive. That's, that's not the point I want to make. The point that I want to draw out of this passage is, in this culture at this time, it, for, for a woman to constantly be speaking against her husband would have brought shame on the household. This is honor-shame culture, and it could have actually hurt their witness and their um, uh, livability in the culture. So for a woman to speak out against her husband all the time like that could be a problem. So what's being said? Okay, if, that, if, if you've got a husband like that, live a different life so that he sees it in you so that he may be won over without words by the behavior of his wife. That is a place that is an extreme exception. What she's just said is, why do I have to be preaching all the time? Why can't I just live a different life and people will see? Listen, what are you saying here? What is the argument here that people will see the way I live and it will be so different that they'll know to go find a preacher and hear the gospel from them and then become a Christian? Is that what we're saying? I mean, because that sounds quite silly. The reality is the gospel message is information. Now, I'm not trying to overly simplify this, but the gospel message is information. No one can look at your life and know that there was a man named Jesus who was God incarnate, who died on a rugged cross. He's part of three part of a, uh, you know, a tri-personal Godhead and all those kind of things. They, they don't know that the, the gospel message is, is personal. I mean, is, um, is information. And so as a result, they won't know it unless someone shares that information with them. And a lot of this nonsense comes from um, uh, a quote that is wrongly attributed to St. Francis Assisi, which is, uh, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. The problem is, it cannot be demonstrated that St. Francis Assisi ever said any such thing. And as much as he preached, it's, it's, it's quite likely that he wouldn't have said, he wouldn't have agreed with it. Um, and here's the thing. Those are not mutually exclusive. You should live a life that testifies to the truth of the gospel message, but you should also preach the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean you have to constantly all the time be beating people over the head with it, but the people in your life should have heard the gospel from you. Yes. Um, and you should be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. 
and to share. Here's the thing. Again, go back to other interests in your life. Um, my daughter has a favorite band right now that she's totally into, my, my older daughter. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows she's into that band. Everyone knows she's into Harry Potter. Everyone in her life knows it. Why? Because that's what she cares about. And so she's talking about it all the time. She also talks about Jesus quite a bit. She made a collage to be her desktop background that said Jesus girl on it. So everybody knows that about her too. But she, people know what your interests are. Would this girl have a problem with someone talking about their favorite band to all their friends or their favorite book series? Probably not. So why Christianity? That's what's so interesting about this. Like, I don't get this hiding under a bushel business. Is it going to offend people? Yeah. Are some people not going to like it? Yeah. You don't have to be a jerk about how you do it. Like, I think there's some people that get up out of the bed in the morning thinking, who can I offend with the Bible? And that's not the way you want to do this. And, you, you know, you, you don't want to just constantly, that's all you talk about. But if it's at the center of, of who you are, if it drives you, if you understand what Jesus did for you, then if everyone in my daughter's life knows that she's into Harry Potter and this particular band, then everyone in your life should pretty well know what you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I, I don't get, I'm sorry. I, that, I, you know, anyway, uh, let's just, uh, let's keep going. I think I've said what I need to say there. There's a church on every block, but for some reason we can't figure out a way to work together. Why is this? So yes, I agree with that. I agree that churches need to work together in a better way. Now, a lot of them do. Um, and, and I, I, I actually think there are important distinctions in denominations. I don't think the people that are, um, Presbyterian, are not my brothers and sisters in Christ. They are if they if they've trusted Jesus and repented of their sins. But at the same time, that issue the issues related to reformed theology, if we're in the same church, we may spend more time arguing about that than worshiping Jesus and getting stuff done. So it's probably better that he goes over there to that church and I go to this church and then we meet for lunch. But we're brothers in Christ. But at the same time, we ought to be able to denominations and even other churches within the denominations need to work together in a greater way. I agree about that. That's a fair point without equivocation. Racism, sexism, and homophobia in the church. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all one in Christ Jesus. So okay, now this is interesting because there is a move that was made here that is pretty popular right now. Um, She's pointing to a passage, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. What is the point here that we're all one in Christ, right? But then uh, flips it over to, uh, hold on, let's, wait a minute. I, I want us to get, the, I want to hear this. I, want, I, I don't want to get anything wrong here and misrepresent. Let's hear it again. So much racism, sexism, and homophobia in the church. Ah, homophobia, right? which homophobia is taken to mean in modern culture that you disagree with same-sex activity, right? That means you're scared of gay people or something. It's homophobia. Um, but anyway, um, to say that there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male, male nor female, is to say we are all one in Christ. It doesn't mean that... Now, obviously, with the racism, she's absolutely right. That's my brother. That's my sister. Even if they're a different color than me. Yeah, absolutely. That that's a perfectly fine application of what's being said in the passage. But this thing about um, uh, homophobia 
there's there's one thing to say we're one in Christ. It's something else to say there are still sexually immoral things that the Bible speaks out against, and you can't pick and choose which passages you're going to like and get rid of the rest. And so the the Bible, and there's going to be another one about LGBT stuff. And listen, the truth is, th- this is an issue where I realize that I, that I am, it's not that I don't understand. I watch the same movies. I hear the same music that, that you do. I understand how this sounds and I wish it didn't sound this way, but the truth is I'm just going to have to be what somebody told me. I'm the nicest bigot on the internet. Well, I don't think I'm a bigot. I think I'm just telling you a biblical sexual, um, morality, but, um, but the Bible, the Bible talks about this in, in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, here's what Paul says. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul, the same Paul, who wrote Galatians is saying here, and that's by the way, Galatians is Pauline and first Corinthians is Pauline. And the same Paul is saying that, that said there's neither slave nor free Jew nor Gentile male nor female is saying here that homosexual activity, homosexual sexual activity is uh, not permissible. And if you continue on in a lifestyle like that, just like if you continue on in adultery or anything else, that kind of person will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now that doesn't mean, and it's important to make this distinction, it doesn't mean that if you have same-sex attraction that you're in sin, um, you can't necessarily help your attractions. Um, But the Bible teaches, whether you like it or not, that same-sex activity is sinful. That's just just the way the Bible teaches it. Now, you don't have to believe the Bible, but if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian and quote Bible to me as your justification— then you need to understand what it's saying. And the, the context there is that we're one in Christ, not there. And so the racial thing, absolutely, yes, that's my brother, that's my sister. But when you want to take that passage, rip it out of context and apply it to and, and try to make it okay to engage in sinful sexual activity, it doesn't work. It do, that is not the context of that passage. And frankly, you know, s- skeptics and atheists and people like that, uh, we'll, we'll tell you, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're trying to do there as maybe a more progressive Christian, but that ain't what the Bible teaches. Um, likewise, in Romans chapter 1, St. Paul, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over uh, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Um, let's see, in the same way, verse 27, in the same way the men also abandoned uh, even their women exchanged natural se- sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, men committed same- shameful acts with other men and received in themselves due penalty of their error. So I understand how uncool that sounds, but that's the Bible. So if you're going to quote Bible, make sure you understand it and don't rip it out of context. Now, here's the thing. Again, I have said many times, there is no guarantee. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, such were some of you. Some of you, Corinthians, were engaged in homosexual activity, uh, but you've been delivered from that. Now, that doesn't mean they've been delivered necessarily from the temptation. 
to, to do it. Just like every thief is not going to be delivered from the temptation to steal something. But what it does mean is they've been delivered in the sense that they're not going to give in to that temptation anymore. And here's the thing. If that's, if, if that's, uh, if that's the case and you become a Christian as a person who experiences same-sex attraction, but you give that up for the kingdom, I think we ought to celebrate you and, and see you as an incredible champion. You are giving up a, a part of the human experience that, that I don't have to give up. That is the kind of sexual interaction that I want to have, I can have. Now, I can't, I mean, every, you know, men who are married, they have to limit that to one woman, right? I mean, they may still have attraction to other people and they have limited it now to, I'm, I'm going to uh, do this in a biblically permissible way, right? The fire goes in the fireplace. Um, and so there, there is still a limiting even with heterosexual Christians, but there is still a way to express that heterosexual desire in a way that's pleasing to God. And I recognize that for people who have same-sex attraction, they may have to give up an aspect of the human experience there that I don't have to give up. And I, I get that. We ought to celebrate people that do that for the sake of the kingdom. Seriously. And, and, and try to understand what, what a great thing that is and love them and love on them. And no one should ever make them feel like a second-class citizen. Um, but you can't take a passage from one place, rip it out of context and act like it's making a point that it's just not making. All right, let's, uh, let's get back to this. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither yeah. slave nor free. This is what we've heard. I'm sorry about this. female for all one in Christ Jesus. So doesn't that pretty much tell you that none of that stuff matters? Why, when the main message of the Bible is to love one another, that we choose to do the opposite? How come when we... That, you know, that person, I, I don't want to... I think we heard one other thing from her so far, and it was the ambiguous thing um, about if God's given us all kinds of gifts, why do we have to fit this perfect mold? I don't know what she meant by that. And likewise here, if, if our main goal is to, is to love, why are we doing the opposite? Yeah, I mean, when Christians do the opposite of love, that's wrong. But I don't know what you mean exactly. All right, let's keep going. Talk about men having several wives in the Old Testament, we say cultural context. But then when we talk about marriage today, it's strictly one man and one woman. Why? Okay, what, what do we mean here? So she's, so she's pointing to something that I do think is an important thing to talk about. Uh, Mike Winger just did a series on marriage and divorce in which I think he dealt with the polygamy question. And it is, okay, the, the Bible does give us examples right now in our Genesis series. And I'd love for you to watch our Genesis series. In fact, by the way, um, I'll go ahead. Well, I can't do it now. But in our Genesis series, we have... Um, 30 something hours of content. And we've talked about the polygamy issue multiple times. We just got done with Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. And that was a polygamous situation, especially when you throw in their handmaidens. So, and, and it's doesn't, you don't seem to get an obvious condemnation of that from God. But what we do see is wherever it shows up in the text, it ends up bad for everybody involved. We also know that their pattern and the pattern to which Jesus pointed was Adam and Eve. And that's the important thing there. Um, so, so I don't defend it as just a cultural thing. I don't think they should have done it in that culture. Um, but if you were arguing, okay, look, the Bible doesn't condemn polygamy in the way that I think would be most obvious. Uh, therefore we should, we should allow for polygamy today. Okay. That would be an, a, a different discussion. 
and a somewhat interesting one, right? But if you're saying that was just cultural, therefore marriage, one man, one woman, which I think we all know she's not arguing for polygamy, although I think that's going to be a thing more and more in the future and polyamory too. She's ta- I think she's talking about the, the, the LGBT thing, right? That's what's really going on here. What does polygamy have to do with that? I know she's trying to say, look, God allowed for that because of the cultural situation. Our cultural situation now is one where um, homosexuality. So, so why, look, we don't get an obvious condemnation of polygamy in the way that would be most obvious in the Bible, but we do get obvious condemnations of homosexual activity. And that's the important thing. So, you know, again, context is really important and understanding what's being said. Uh, let's, I think this is going to be related to that point. So let's hear what she has to say. Having a diverse group of friends make me less Christian. Why why does having a diverse group of friends make me less Christian? I don't think that it does. I, you know, if you have gay friends, uh, unsaved friends, uh, friends of, you know, uh, people of different ethnicities, I think that's great. Now, to, to the extent that you have unsaved friends or people claiming to be Christians but are, but are engaged in sinful activities for which they are not repentant, in such a case, if you recognize that is beginning to diminish your Christian walk and rub off on you in a way that um, you're, you're starting to engage in activities and take up habits and things that they're pulling you down, you need to be self-consciously aware of that. And so you also do need to have a bunch of strong Christian friends. But, it, but, but, but here's the way to avoid that, and you're not going to like it. And this is going to be totally uncool, and I know how this is going to be seen online, and frankly, I don't care. Here's the thing. I have, I, I have friends who are not Christians, and when I'm around or communicating with those friends, we may— we may do other things like perhaps we would watch a movie together or talk about music or in the past, go to concerts or whatever, something like that. That's fine. And have fun with those people. That's fine. But the primary goal, the primary operation I'm interested in is them coming to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I make that clear to them that, Hey, we're friends and I really do care about you as a friend. But part of the reason I care about you, or part of, the, uh, part of what it means that I care about you as a friend is that I want you to come to know Jesus. And I make no bones about that. And that's the way it is. So that's an important thing. And if you're focused on that, again, it doesn't mean you're constantly just preaching, preaching, preaching at them. You look for moments where, where, where it's appropriate. But they need to know where you stand, the thing that's the most important to you, and if you don't, if that sounds bad to you, like a bad foundation, listen, if we believe what we believe is true about the Bible, that Jesus is the only way and that there's coming a judgment and all of that, then guess what? It is, what kind of a person are you if that's not your primary goal is reaching them for the message of the cross? So I think that's important. All right, let's, uh, let's keep trucking. Does the church consider LGBT Christians as less than? I don't remember there being a demographic of people that Jesus saw as less than. Okay, LGBT people are not less than, but that is an incredibly ambiguous phrase. What do you mean less than? Did Jesus think a group of people were less than? Well, actually, again, depends on what you mean. I mean, the Pharisee up here that's, thank you for not making me like so-and-so, he didn't 
praise them as much as the guy who's Lord be merciful to me, a sinner, right? So, I mean, what do you mean by less than? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, right? Um, so what do you mean by less than? Now, I, th- I think what she means is why don't we I- ignore the, the homosexual activity and consider them full members in the church or um, fully right with God, just like we do anyone else. And this is where I have to say this again, and you've probably heard me say it before if you've been listening for long. But here's the thing that, that this is one of the things that's different about homosexuality. It's that the person who's engaged, homosexual activity is one of the few things where the person who is engaging in that sin is saying uh, that I am, I am not going to apologize for this. This is how I am. This is who I am. And I have no intention of changing. If that's the person, then they're not repenting of the sin. You can't even become a Christian if you won't repent of your sin. Now, that doesn't mean you won't make mistakes once you repent. And in the same way, if a, if a person was a liar or um, a divorced person that didn't have biblical exceptions or reasons for that, and they, and they were not repentant about it, okay, well, I'm, same deal. I'm sorry. You have to repent of your sins. So I've said this many times. Church membership is not necessarily a thing, but we have it today. And so let's use it as an example. If someone came forward um, and said, uh, and I was a pastor. I'm not, I'm not, but if I was a pastor and someone said, Pastor, I'd like to become a member in the church. And, and you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, repent of your sins. Yep, sure have. Okay. Um, and, and they say, but I want you to know one thing. I'm a liar, and I don't intend to stop lying. I'm going to continue to lie. I'm proud of it and all that sort of thing. I would say, well, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't invite you to become a member of the church because you can't even become a Christian if you won't repent of your lying. But if someone came forward and said, I've got a problem with lying. I am a Christian, but I, I may make mistakes going forward. But it's my intention not to lie. And I thank God Jesus died for my sins. and I'm going to do everything I can to live for him and put this thing aside. I have repented of it, though I make make mistakes going forward. Well, then come on into the fellowship, brother or sister. The, the, we're all sinners. Likewise, if someone came forward and said, um, I, I'm a, a gay man and I don't intend to quit. I believe that this is how God made me and I want to be this way and I'm not going to change and come what may and all that whole thing. I don't see it as sinful activity. Well, then I'm sorry I, I, that it, the Bible is clear that this is sinful activity. But if the person came forward and said, I, I have same sex attraction, I've been I've acted on it in the past, but I, I realize it's not God's ultimate design and I am repenting of it and giving it up for the sake of the kingdom. I may make mistakes going forward, but it's not my intention. Come on into the fellowship, brother, sister. Um, we we're all sinners. That's how that goes. That's how that goes. But a person who has done that, who has given it up for the sake of the kingdom and may make mistakes, but their intention is not to make mistakes. They're not second class citizens. What are you talking about? The people that no one's a second class citizen. But the thing is, if you're not repentant of sin, you're not being a Christian. That's the important thing that we have to take hold of. And we do make a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. The Bible does. Oh, all that grace and forgiveness and love we've all received, how come we can't find a way that extend that to other people? Why? Um, I think we should find ways to extend that to other people. And to the extent that it's not happening, I'll say again, you're right. But I need more specifics. What do you mean extend grace and forgiveness? I think Christians should be doing that. And most Christians I know are trying to do that. We're not perfect. But, I, but when it's not happening, it needs to happen. That's absolutely right. So high five.
you feel like love the sinner and hate the sin is an okay thing to say, you realize that's condescending and still separating them as an other, right? Why do you? Okay, love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, this is a good thing to talk about here because I get that that sounds cliche, and usually I hate things that are cliche. But I think what has happened is that has become cliche and used so much that people have just felt like there's something wrong with it intrinsically because of how cliche it is and that it sounds condescending. Well, let's find out whether it's true or not. Let's find out whether it's true and useful and accurately reflects how you think about other people. Okay, here goes. So let's imagine that, um, that, that you're friends with a couple and, and that they're fine people, except the man in this relationship is, uh, is an alcoholic and, and we should, our hearts should go out for people dealing with that and we should try to help them. But this guy's got no interest in being helped and he is drinking and it's getting worse all the time and it's destroying his marriage and it's destroying his kids uh, future and it's destroying his ability to make money and it's destroying everything about this family. And, and you love this family and you care about this guy. Would it not be accurate to say, I hate that sin? Would that not be accurate? I hate, or I hate, at least you could say, I hate this alcoholism. I hate what it's doing to you. What if the man said, so you hate me? No, I don't hate you. I hate this thing you're doing. So you love me? Yeah, I love you. I hate that. So you hate the sin, love the sinner, right? That's just the way it is. That's just reality. Now, I think, honestly, I think where this becomes particularly, like she said, condescending to people. So, so first of all, it reflects reality, right? If something is sinful, we hate the sin and love the sinner. That's just the way it is. You may not like the way it sounds. It may sound cliche, but everyone feels that way about something, depending on what the issue is. But I think we know what's really going on here is this phrase has become particularly problematic when it comes to the LGBT thing again. Now, the reason for that is because LGBT issues, um, uh, so sexuality is really closely related to our identity as human beings, um, how your sexual orientation. So the alcoholic, it may be true that a part of his identity has come to be that he's an alcoholic. But he certainly doesn't want that to be part of his identity and might reject that it is a part of his identity. I, I ride a bicycle to work, or at least I did before my bike got stolen. But I don't think of bike riding as a part of my identity. It's a thing I do. And so in a very loose definition, it's a part of my identity, but not really. And it's not I don't think about who I am as oh, I'm, a, I'm Braxton Hunter, the bike rider. Now, our sexuality is much more intimately connected to who we are, you know, our, our identity, how we view ourselves, how the world views us. And to that extent, it's very difficult when you're trying to say, love the sin, hate the sinner. You're basically saying the way that is heard is you're hating a part of my identity. And to show you how intertwined sexuality, your sexual orientation is to your identity. It's not just about sex qua sex. It's about something a little subtler than that, but also a lot deeper. So your sexuality masculinity, femininity, these kind of things. That's all wrapped up in that sexuality and sexual orientation is going to impact that. There's an incredible book. I'm going to throw it up on the screen here. Um, well, how do I do that? Yeah, there's a great book um, 
on the meaning of sex by Jay Budzisuski. Yeah, that's a name. And um, th- this is an this is an incredible book. I encourage everyone to read it. And it's just fantastic. Uh, it's very philosophical, but it's also very helpful and practical. But it'll help you understand things about yourself. But one thing that he, he's talking about Mother Teresa here, and he's talking about how Mother Teresa's sexuality was very important to who she was and what her identity was. So I'm going to read just a, a bit from this. He says, it is no accident that she was called Mother Teresa. Though she set aside the whole business of erotic love, marriage, and physical conception, her beauty was that of a holy woman, distinct from the beauty of a holy man. The qualities that distinguish women from men were distilled, concentrated, and spiritualized in her. This kind of beauty also has its signs, its radiance, and its glory, and it is utterly womanly. On the other hand, Teresa's kind of womanly beauty was not what we normally call sexy. So what is sexiness? I confess that I dislike the word. It is a harsh word, coarse and brazen. So what he's trying to say is your sexuality is more than just sex or sexiness. It inform, it's a part of your identity. It informs who, who you are and how you, how you express yourself. And so whenever someone says to you, um, so whenever someone says love the sinner, hate the sin, and they're talking about something that you feel is a behavior because it is the behavior, not the same sex attraction, but, but it's, a, it's related to a behavior that you find intrinsically tied to your sexuality, which is tied to your identity. It really just sounds problematic, to say the least, to say love the sin, hate the sinner, when, or love the sinner, hate the sin. Have I been saying that wrong? Uh, when what it sounds like you're saying is um, hate the sinner and hate the sin, because they see that as a part of who they are. But here's the thing that just gets us back to the deeper question. Are you a Bible believing Christian? If you are, no matter how uncool it sounds, if this is something that is condemned in scripture and is wrong, this activity, then it's a sin and we shouldn't want sin. We should be against sin. And so it's not wrong to say, I hate this sin. I hate what it is doing to the, our relationship. I, I, I don't like where it, the course of life that it's sending you down, but I love you as the sinner. So I get that. I try not to use that phrase because I know how pat it sounds. And maybe it does sound a little too basic, but the fact is it's not wrong. And that's why to answer the question, some people say that. All right, let's keep going. You can judge my relationship with God off of a handful of statements. You- How do you think you can judge my relationship with God off a handful of statements? Well, I need to know what those statements are. (laughs) It could be that you could make a handful of statements that would give me a pretty clear idea of where you stand with God or how you view God. We need to know what those statements are. So there you go. Mad at me for not being able to back up what I have to say, but you end up taking scripture out of context so many times. Okay, yeah, you shouldn't take Scripture out of context. I agree, because we've seen that done at least twice in this video. (laughs) Scripture taken out of context and used to make a point that that Scripture was not making. So I agree, that shouldn't be done. High five. What makes you decide what makes me a good Christian? Last I checked, everyone's relationship with God is personal. In the end... The grand message here is that you're supposed to love one another. And I'm sorry if I sound like a Hallmark after school special, but it's the truth. 
Do you really think? Okay, what? Okay, we're done with that now. What if the way that I love, I need to love you, is by privately confronting you? I wouldn't do this with a woman. I'd have another woman with me or or something. But what if the what if the way that needs to be done is okay? So I'm not talking to a skeptic. I'm not talking to an atheist out here. I'm not talking to a Muslim. You're my sister in Christ. We're both supposedly agreeing on our foundations here. And what I'm biblically supposed to do is to confront you with something when I see a problem and talk to you about it and admonish you on that. And you're supposed to do that to me. It doesn't mean I'm saying you're a bad Christian, but you say it's all about love. That may be the right way to love you in a particular moment. Right? I mean, I think what has happened here is we've got a, we've got Christians who have adopted a secular understanding of what love is supposed to be adopted a secular understanding of human sexuality adopted a secular um, conception of, of what judgmentalism is and what biblical Christianity is, and then have tried to force that onto Christianity itself. So just like there's a ball of wax that is evangelicalism and there might be some things in there like Trump or, or the duck dynasty or God's not dead. And these are things that you don't like. And, and, and so, so, so you don't necessarily relate to that, but you do like the Christianity. Okay. Well, now you've done that same thing too. You've taken this ball of things that are from the secular culture and, and go down smooth to secularists and, and, and that sort of thing and taking all the harsh truths and put them aside for the spirit of love. And, and, and then you've stuck Christianity in there. And I don't like that ball either. Uh, you know, we're all going to have things that we layer on top of our Christianity that relate to our culture and how we function in the world. Here's the problem. On either side of that, on traditional evangelicalism or on a more progressive understanding of Christianity, where there are things that violate Scripture um, and go against what God has commanded for his people, we don't make excuses for those things. Um, we, we try to think of how we can exhibit them and share them with a spirit of love, but we don't make excuses for those things. We, 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 we reject those things that go against God's word. That's our authority. And um, so that you're going to have a ball of wax, which is your cultural expression of Christianity. But our job should be to pay attention to what's in there and parse out the things that shouldn't be and that are going to be unnecessary stumbling blocks. And the things that are there, like for those of you that because of the pro-life position, the Trump thing is there, explain why it's there and, 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 and understand that that in itself is something that we think we hold the views we have because of Christianity, but it's not the same as Christianity. And so I'm hoping that the answers to these questions will have been helpful in some way to somebody. But I've enjoyed this time that we've had together, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.